Let's turn to God's Word, to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 11 on page 1138, and entitled this, God's Plan for Jew and Gentile, or God's Plan for the World. Now, this week, there was a video of a church in China, big church, 50,000 people. And the Chinese government have just knocked their building down. So just imagine, we're, we're not quite 50,000 people, but imagine if the government came in and just knocked this building down. And they just knocked, the, they just flattened um, the whole building. And I wonder how the congregation feel about that. And that's not the first church in China that that has happened to. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which had already seen the Jews expelled uh, from Rome and then come back. And there's a lot of things that don't seem to be working out the way you'd expect them to. You would have expected uh, the Jewish people to accept the Messiah as Paul did, and Paul's answering the question as to why that did not happen. And then he goes on in this section to look at some of the Excuse me. Um, I think something that for, for me is very encouraging in the sense of what he expects the gospel to happen. This is what God is telling us, how the gospel will prosper and grow. So let's look at verse 11 and 12 first. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Israel rejected the gospel. That's what he's saying overall. But have they stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery? No, he says. Not at all. In fact, he explains why it's happened, and it's really quite an astonishing statement. He says, inspired by the Spirit, that their rejection has led to the Gentiles being saved, the non-Jews, which in turn leads to the Israelites becoming envious, and he anticipates in verse 12 and later on, he anticipates a greater blessing for Israel. So right back at the beginning of chapter 10, he said, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites that they may be saved. And now he's saying, many are going to be, many will see, many will um, put their trust in the Lord. Deuteronomy, he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21, they made me jealous by what is no God and they angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. So what Paul is saying is that um, the Jews would become envious because of the blessing that God gave to the Gentiles. And that happened many times. Paul saw that. That was his methodology. In Acts 13 verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. 
Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So you see the pattern. This happened four times at least four times, that Paul goes to the synagogue and he teaches people. He comes up and he he will teach from the Bible. And some people are interested. Some people become believers. Others are not. Very often they reject it. In this particular instance, Paul invites the whole city and basically the whole city come. I mean, that would be something else. So that would be like me saying, okay, instead of St. Pete's, we're going to go to Dens Park uh, or Tanadice, it doesn't matter. Um, and we're going to go, and the, the whole city is invited. Now, I don't think it literally meant everyone in the city came, but there was such an interest. And here's the astonishing thing, that, that the Jewish leaders and others in that city were jealous and were envious. And Paul said, well, this is just a fulfillment of the prophecy. I've made you a light for the Gentiles. And that was, of course, God's plan all along. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And there's a chain of blessing. This is repeated in in Romans chapter 11 six times. God blesses the Jew. Then because of the Jew, God blesses the Gentile. Then the Jew again. Then the Gentile again. So that the whole world is blessed. And so instead of seeing What people saw here was the Jewish people are rejecting the Messiah. Isn't this a terrible thing? He's saying, yes, it is. But there's a greater purpose that God has in this, and it's to bring blessing. Now, I want to just back up a little bit and and think about it in this way. Let's say something about this, this jealousy and what it says in terms of our own evangelism. Sometimes... Uh, when I was not very keen on going to church and had stopped going, I would look out and I would see some Christians going to church and I would think, do you know this? I wish I was going with them. I'd like to be with them. I'd like to have what they've got. And I wonder if people see us being so enriched by what we receive, so glorying in Christ, that our neighbors would say, I really want that. I remember one man here in this city uh, meeting with me one time, and he said to me, David, I hate what you teach. I hate it. But he said, I love what you've got. Could you not just have what you've got without Jesus? It's like, you know, have you heard of the atheist church? They've tried to have atheist church, and basically because a guy went to a Pentecostal church, he thought, this is great. Let's have this without Jesus. So I don't know what they sing, Kumbaya or, or, you know, Imagine or something. Uh, And, you know, uh, and they try and mimic. Maybe sometimes a, a, a lot of churches are like that. But I hate what you teach, but I love what you have. And that's what Paul's speaking about here, this jealousy in terms of, I really wish I had what you people had. I wish I had that hope. I wish I had that peace. I wish I had that joy. And that's why it's important for us to grow in our own faith and to be encouraged in our own faith. 
Because yes, we struggle. Those of us who are Christians, we struggle in many different ways. But you know this, if we're morose and miserable, what kind of witness is that to Christians? To Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that Christians are never ever sad. That would be a, a kind of false misery. But I've seen so many people be drawn to ask and actually being made jealous because of what they've seen amongst the community of God's people. There's another factor here as well. Paul basically left. His pattern was he'd go to the synagogue, he'd teach in the synagogue. If they wouldn't accept it, He left or he got kicked out. But he still cared for the people who were left there. And sometimes I think there's a lesson for us in the Christian church. Personally, I would never ever go to a church or be part of a denomination which was apostate and turned away from the Bible. But that doesn't mean you reject and despise the people who are there. You still have a longing for them. I think of, and again, the jealousy side of it. I was thinking about whether I should tell this story or not, but I will. Uh, St. Andrews, we thought many years ago, we thought we need to do something in St. Andrews because there was about 50 or 60 people in the congregation and then about 10, 15 people were coming from St. Andrews because they wanted a church with this kind of Bible teaching. We thought, well, we do a church plant in St. Andrews. And we thought, no, that's daft. St. Andrews is just a wee suburb of Dundee. You know, sorry if you're from St. Andrews, but you are. And it's like, you know, 15,000 people and half of them are students and they wouldn't be interested anyway. But we did about a year's worth of research, and we realized that there was scope for another church in St. Andrews. And one of the reasons that there was scope was, although there were a number of Church of Scotlands, we were informed by a a leading Church of Scotland evangelical that St. Andrews Presbytery had had a policy for 40 years of not letting an evangelical in. And so he said, you go and do it. Go and do it. So we did. We started. And you know this, within a year of us starting, the Church of Scotland changed their policy and called an evangelical to one of their churches. And people said, you must be mad at that. And I said, no, I'm absolutely delighted. It's great. Because someone's coming and someone else is coming and preaching the gospel as well. And what made people do it? I, I think it was jealousy. It's going to be a, an, an incredibly powerful and motivating factor. Continuing with this, just looking at these verses, the Jews tra- if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? Now, I mentioned that this this morning, and I want to mention it again. In the light of biblical prophecy, and biblical prophecy is such a witness to the Bible. There have been many things that are prophesied, but particularly about the Jews, And this one of them being blessing and of them continuing and even being as a nation, that's remarkable that that has come true. Now, I'm not sure what you think of the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. I know what the previous incumbent of this pulpit thought, Robert Murray McShane, because he traveled to Israel. He believed that uh, the Jewish nation would be set up again. And In the 19th century, that seemed absolutely insane. Even worse, when he traveled for six months to Israel and almost got killed coming back, it took six months to go. And yet, when I started doing research into McShane, I was asked by a professor at the University of Edinburgh if I would uh, do a PhD. I didn't do it, 
But if I would do a PhD on how McShane and what they called the Clapham sect in London founded the modern state of Israel. You think, no, that's not right. I mean, the Scots claim everything. Are you really saying that we founded Israel? Well, the modern state, to some degree, yes, because it came out of the Balfour Declaration, which came out of that group. And remarkably, after the First World War, from that eventually came the modern state of Israel. Now, there are people within who see that as a specific fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Whether you do or not, it is still remarkable that uh, the Jewish people have survived and that the nation is still there. And one of the reasons it's remarkable, by the way, is when the church went wrong. And this, the, the church in Rome, which eventually became the Roman Catholic Church, Sadly, after several centuries, they began teaching that it was the Jews who were responsible for the death of Jesus. And it was this bloodlust uh, teaching that they had. And so the Jews were called Christ killers. And so in every country in Europe, the Jews were persecuted. Do you know there was only one country in Europe where there were not laws against the Jews? And that's Scotland. It's absolutely remarkable that that was the case. In, in, in England, until Cromwell came, and Cromwell made the Jews welcome, because again, he, the Puritans, they, they, they looked at this and they thought, no, we, we've got to seek blessing upon Israel. But sadly, it was true, and, and I don't, not just the Catholic Church, but Martin Luther, some of his writings against the Jews are absolutely horrendous. Luther was a great guy, but great guys get things wrong, and he got that one really, really wrong. And there was a fruit of that that it eventually came up through. I'm not saying Luther was responsible for Hitler, but I'm saying that the teaching about the Jews, uh, Jews as, you know, they're rich bankers who are taking over the world. It's this huge conspiracy theory against the Jews. And you think, well, that doesn't exist. Well, I can think of someone I know who's very liberal and left-wing, middle class, quite well off, said, oh, I hate the Jews because the Jews do this and the Jews do that. What? And then, of course, the uber right-wing do the same stuff. And a lot of it comes from this. Now, I like what Lloyd-Jones says, what the Christian attitude should be towards the Jewish people. We as Gentile Christians should be concerned about these people. We should realize that we are called to rouse them to jealousy, far from regarding them as being rejected by God because they as a nation have rejected the Messiah. We should feel a greater sense of compassion for them than perhaps anybody else and do all we can to bring the gospel to them. I don't do this. I, don't, I suspect nobody else here does this. But McShane used to pray for an hour a day for the Jewish people specifically and three hours on a Sunday. Now, he didn't have television. I'm being facetious, but he, he took it seriously to, to pray for the Jewish people and to ask God to bless the Jewish people and above all, to ask the Lord to bring them to himself. That's why we encourage and support works like Christian witness to Israel. Let me take one other just simple lesson from this, uh, this part, and that is if God, you know, you, you look at this and you say, what is going on? If you're in this context and you're Paul and you're saying, what's happening with my people? And it just looks so bad. And you, you think, well, Lord, please come and answer. Please come and deal with this. And the Lord did, but the way that the Lord deals with things is not often as we would expect. So we, we, we are looking for 
you know, big answers straight away. But that's not how the Lord often works. I love what William Cowper says. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. How do you feel about things? Pretty depressed about things. Pretty discouraged with this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. He goes on. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud will have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What's going on in the world? What's happening? Why does God permit some things? Why are other things not happening? And we are told, as we were singing in that psalm, just to be patient. I waited for the Lord. It's patient. Not one of God's promises has ever failed. He may not work them out in exactly the way that you look for. I mean, I'm, I, look, I look for um, instant answers with things. You know, Lord, this is a very good thing. So just to give you one example, I'm waiting for a visa just now for Australia. I'm going, Lord, this is a very, very good thing. It's the right thing now, please. Doesn't happen that way. And there's always a purpose as to, as to why things take time or how they occur in different ways. We walk by faith, not by sight. Paul goes on, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Now he changes, you see, instead of speaking about the Jews, he's now talking to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. Now, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's saying that. But he's not saying, I've forgotten my own people. In fact, he sees this as a win-win situation. As the Gentiles are converted, they cause the Jews to become jealous, who then, in turn, will be converted. Uh, I know a situation, a church in the United Kingdom, which hadn't seen much growth, and then all of a sudden, they've had a lot of Iranians come in who've become Christians, and actually, some of the local people who've been coming along saying, hang on, that's not fair. How come they've become Christians? And there's a little bit of, of uh, almost of, of jealousy in that way. When we're um, thinking about Malcolm and so on and uh, the work that Malcolm and Ruth did in Fintry for many, many years. I remember many years ago, there was a man from China came to work in the Michelin tire factory and he Googled at least this is what he said, he googled uh, Dundee, and for some bizarre reason, up came Fintry Church. So he thought, oh, I'll go to that. And he went, and he became a Christian. And Fintry, to be honest, hadn't seen many local Dundonians becoming Christians, and then for a while, it became the go-to church for Chinese people. Who would have thought it? Fintry. Sorry, apologies to those of you in Fintry, but it was great. It was fantastic. It was really encouraging. And, you know, I almost imagine somehow that provokes people a little bit to jealousy. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. And he's saying, it's, it's, you, you, what you've got to do is you've got to make people want it. You know, evangelism is not going around yelling at people, telling them, you know, how miserable they all are. It's, it's letting people see how attractive Jesus is. And they go, well, why have you got him? And I don't have him. And he says, I mean, you know, isn't that a little bit kind of like advertising? Isn't that what advertising does? Advertising's busy, you know, you're saying, you know, if you have this aftershave, all the ladies will want you. That's one way of, 
of putting it. If uh, you want the links effect, or if you have this computer, or if you have, you, know, you kind of, the whole point of advertising is to get you jealous enough to want it. Well, there's a sense in which what we're doing as Christians is we're proclaiming the glory of Christ, which makes people, wait a minute, I want who he is. I want what he gives. And he says, this will bring resurrection from the dead. What's, now, what, what does that talk about? If their acceptance is bring life from the dead, what he's talking about is he's saying, I don't think it's the literal resurrection. I think it is more out of Ezekiel, where the dry bones, can these bones live? And what Paul is saying here is he said, if the Jews rejecting Jesus brought great blessing to the Gentiles, then can you imagine what it would be like when the Jews accept Jesus? How much greater the blessing will be. And there's a kind of, almost like a, a, a selfish motivation in there that you, you, you pray for the Lord to bless the Jewish people because we believe it will bless other people as well. And he uses this image of the dough, probably from Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 17, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land to which I'm taking you and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a loaf from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. The first fruits for God were the Jewish people. The first fruits, Christ the first fruits, we were spoken of in Corinthians. But the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then in the New Testament church, the apostles, who were all Jews. And that was the first fruit, if you like. And then that, the, that's the root. And then from that comes this great blessing to the Gentiles. And Paul is now arguing that we should be looking for more blessing amongst the Jews because of that. And then he goes on to give us a warning. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were grafted off, broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's using a very simple illustration of an olive tree. And for those of you who are gardeners and pedants, uh, if you know anything about agriculture, then you would realize, well, Paul's just a townie. It's like me giving illustrations from medicine, which always causes the medical students here to burst out laughing, because I know nothing about medicine. Well, they're saying, Paul didn't know anything about gardening, obviously. He didn't know anything about olive trees, because that's not how it worked. But Paul's not giving a gardening lesson. And anyway, we have evidence from the first century of there were times when the natural branches were broken off and the unnatural ones were, were, were put in and, and got life from it. But his point about that is that he's, he's thinking about Israel or the people of God as an olive tree. Jeremiah eleven sixteen. the Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form, 
but with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire, and its branches will be broken. Well, the roots are the patriarchs, the natural branches were the Jews, and the Gentiles were the engrafted branches. But overall, there's only one people of God. The barrier, the barrier between is broken down by Christ. The olive tree is ultimately the whole people of God, not just the Jewish people. Earlier in Romans 9, 6, he said, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And you see, it's a mistake. And I know that there are some Christians who interpret the Bible in this way, but I think this is a big mistake to say that there are two ways of salvation. There's a way of the covenant of works through the Jews and the temple and everything else. And then there's a way of covenant of faith, if you like, through Jesus. Any Jew who is saved is saved by Jesus, the same. Paul in Romans, what does he do? The example of justification by faith is who? It's Abraham, the patriarch. The Jews are saved in the same way as Christians. Somebody asked this morning afterwards, I thought Judaism was a religion. Are you saying it's the same? Well, the Jews are a people. And yes, of course, there is a religious aspect, much of which we accept. We believe that there is one God. We believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God. But the religion doesn't save. It's Christ alone who saves. And the Old Testament points forward to Christ. So there's only one church, all believers in Jesus, including Jewish and Gentile. In, in, in Christ, there is no Jew nor barbarian, Scythian, Greek, or free. So the Gentiles must not boast and they must not be anti-Jewish. And if only the medieval church had taken this seriously, then so much evil would have been prevented. But there's a thing here about boasting, and let me just say something briefly about this. Boasting is so dangerous because it is the very opposite of faith. Faith is our humble acceptance of God's salvation. When we boast, we boast because we have no idea of who God is. Pride is a phenomenal enemy to each of us. Pride leads us to despise others and to exalt ourselves. The Christian is a person who says, I am what I am by the grace of God. We can't boast that we are different from other people. Now, that doesn't mean we should be uncertain of our faith. There are people who will say, okay, I understand this, and not all are Israel who say they're of Israel. I'm a professing Christian, but what if I'm not really converted? You know, here's the most amazing thing. Nobody but a Christian would ask that because a non-Christian says, of course I'm a Christian. They either know that they're not a Christian or they'd be very confident in their religiosity. I go to church. You know, I've had the most ridiculous statements made to me about being a Christian. I think my absolute favorite is, of course I'm a Christian. I go to Ibrooks, which I just... I was, they actually believed that. They actually meant it. If you don't know what Ibrox is, it doesn't matter. Um, and I've met others. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to this church or that church. No. No, no. A Christian is someone who's in Christ, who follows Christ. And it's really only a Christian who would agonize and say, you know, do, do, I, really, do I really believe? Am I really there? If you, if you genuinely have that concern, at the very least, it's a sign that, that God is 
at work in your life. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, I think, sees great hope for his people here being grafted back in, but they must not persist in unbelief. And notice what he says in this next bit. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, providing that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is also able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, see, maybe Paul there is anticipating his critics, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, Paul is not teaching here you can lose your salvation. That's not the point of what he's teaching. What he's teaching is this, is salvation does not come by your upbringing, by your ethnicity, by your works or your religion. Salvation comes by your faith in Jesus Christ. And these are amazing words. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. Let us never try and separate the goodness, or another word for it is, and the severity of God. You know, I think there's a big problem with a lot of our evangelism, and it goes like this. I think of a lot of our evangelism is, you need this, we can give it to you. We tell people what they need, and we tell them that Jesus will provide it. Are you lonely? Jesus will do this. Are you sick? Jesus will do this. Are you unhappy? Jesus will make you happy. And I think that's a big mistake in evangelism. Why? Because the greatest need for anybody we, is for us to tell people about God. Evangelism starts with the knowledge of God. There's only one way to make sure that everyone needs Christ, and that is to hold them face to face with God. That's one of the, the difficulties with Christian evangelism, because there's a sense in which when we're talking to people, it's not good news. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to face up to it. I think the way we do evangelism is a bit like if there's a, having said about medical illustrations, I don't do them. Well, here's one. Um, you go to a doctor, and this is what a bad doctor would do, right? You go in and they say, do you know this? Um, you're going to have this operation, and, and you're going to be great afterwards. It's all going to be wonderful. And you're just going to have a great time at Nine Wells. And, you know, this is fantastic. You know, people would pay a fortune for this kind of experience. And they tell you basically what they hope the results will be in the good things, but what they don't tell you is, this is going to be incredibly painful, and someone's going to stick a needle in you, and someone's going to operate on you, and, you know, there's, these things are going to, this is quite tough, and you'll, you'll need about four weeks to recover or something, and, and, and so on. But a bad doctor says, you know this, I don't want to upset them, I don't want to tell them that it's quite serious, I don't want to tell them. And a bad doctor would say, well, take it or leave it, you can do it if you want to. You know, I have actually found it quite strange recently that uh, a couple of times I've had um, the health service say to me, well, it's up to you whether you want to do this or not. I'm going, no, you're the doctor, it's up to you. You do it, I trust you. And they kind of look and go, don't, don't, don't trust us, almost. You know, you're the, you know, it's autonomy, you can do it. I said, no, I haven't a clue, just if, if it, you're the doctor, I'll do what you say. Well, I think we do our evangelism often in a bad, bad way in that sense. We need to tell people about the God who is good, about the God who is love, but also the God who hates sin. 
We need to tell them about this all-powerful and almighty and awesome God. The message of the gospel is not come because God needs you. The message of the gospel is come because God is God and you need him. And so he says that if you continue, because that's the ultimate test, isn't it, of whether we are Christians. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? You keep going. What does Peter say? Peter says, you know when your faith is, is proved real? It's not when everything's going well. It's when your church is burned down. It's when your best friend says they no longer believe. It's when things don't work out. That's when your faith is proved real. I don't think funerals are an opportunity for evangelism, but I'll tell you this. I think the Christian faith is demonstrated far more at a funeral than almost anywhere else. That's why in Ecclesiastes it says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Because that's where it's for real. Maybe just a couple of other lessons or observations I want to make as we finish with this, and next week we'll do the, the last part of um, Romans 11. The Jewish church, and that's what I will call it, the church in the Old Testament, because that's what the Bible calls the church in the wilderness, turned against Christ largely. Not all, many didn't. We saw that this morning. What's to say that the Christian church in any particular era or country doesn't often do the same? Have you ever noticed how every institution tends to produce its opposite as it declines? We forget original principles. We come to rely on the church as an institution. Now, there has to be an institution. There has to be an organization and so on. But being institutionalized, that's a disaster. Again, it is a bit like the health service. Health service is a great thing when people are caring for people, but when it becomes a machine and the people are just fodder for the machine, it just ends up doing harm. And I think that's the same with the church. We need to pray that there would be spiritual life. And that's why we need doctrine, we need teaching, because we need to know about God And we mustn't also rely on the fact that we think we're quite sound in doctrine just now because there's no guarantee we will be so in a year's time. We have to watch ourselves. We have to be careful. And I think maybe especially we have to be careful that we don't become hard in our spirits because we're correct in doctrine. How many people either say, well, this is the right doctrine, this is the right doctrine, this is the right doctrine, but there's something incredibly unattractive about them because in their spirit, They've become hard and they've become cold and they've become unloving. And that's not the right doctrine. Again, Lloyd-Jones. I I found this very challenging. Forgive me for the the length of it, but I did find this challenging. We'll finish with this. Are we becoming like those Jews at the time of our Lord and at the time of the great apostle? Is our attitude to those who we regard as complete outsiders such that God may have to put us on one side And may even use our utter wrongness as a means of bringing the gospel to these people. There are many indications of this, it seems to me, today. There is confusion in the church. There's the tendency of so many Christians to live a little, confined life. Putting a hedge around ourselves. And having a wrong attitude towards those who are outside. 
If the gospel cannot save those to whom we tend to react so violently, it's not a gospel. Why are the masses of the people outside the church in this country today? Why do all the efforts of the church fail to touch the working people, so-called? Why is Christianity becoming increasingly and almost exclusively a middle-class movement? There is something wrong. And then Lloyd-Jones says this. I found this an extraordinary statement. I have more hope for the masses outside of the church than I do for many within it. I have more hope for the masses outside of the church than I do for many within it. See, sometimes God finishes with the church, particular churches. That's it. It's done. You're finished. And who's to know but in this city? You know, I mean, what's, what's our attitude, for example, to Charleston? Oh, that's a nice thing to do, having a church amongst the poor, but it'll never be, a, you know, like the main church. Why not? What if God blesses there? Do you know where the church is growing in, in, in Britain today? Amongst the Roma people, despised. And yet there are churches with thousands, the Roma people. In India, amongst the Dalit people, despised caste. God doesn't need us. We are privileged to be used by the Lord, but we need to have his heart and his compassion. The compassion that Paul had is his pleading for his own people, his, his, his just absolute passion to bring the gospel, the good news to the Gentiles. So our attitude is to be one of humility, not pride if we've got the right doctrine, not pride that we're Christians but just a humble thankfulness to God and praying, just praying that there would be so much life in us that it would draw other people and it would cause um, people to be jealous and seek to know Jesus Christ. I talked to somebody fairly recently, he's not a Christian, and they said, you know, if this is true, if this was true, what a difference that would make to Scotland. Well, if we believed it, well, it's up to us to show the difference that it makes. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Kindness to you, providing that you continue in his kindness. God is able Paul says, basically, if God can save a Gentile like you, then how much more can he save the Jews? And I think what God is saying to us is a very simple thing. I think it's a, it's a great way in terms of evangelism. You should have confidence that God can save the people around you. Why? Because he saved you. And believe you me, you are really difficult to save. But if he can save me, then he can save anybody else. And that should give you confidence. And I think, ultimately... That's what Paul is teaching us, that there's going to be this great blessing come. By the way, this, is, this chapter is not one in which is saying the church is going to decline and, and it's all downhill from Pentecost. It's the very opposite. It's the gospel will be preached in all the world and there will be a tremendous fruit. Well, God grant that that would be so. You 
Yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about whether I would say this or not, so I will say it now. Because if I didn't, you'd think, what was he going to say? Um, when I came here, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking a lot about obviously leaving. came here 27 years ago. And with the pews and all this and the handful of people who are here. And I remember saying about, you know, when we get 100 people, we'll start using the balcony. I remember the laughter. I remember one lady, a lovely, lovely lady, burst out laughing. And just, you're kidding. That's never, ever going to happen. And I, I said at the time, please, you must understand, I am not saying that I can bring you 100 people because I know I can't. And I'm not saying that God is going to because I don't know whether God is going to. But I am saying this to you. If you don't believe God can, go shut the door. I remember saying that. And you know, the funny thing is that if we had 100 people now on a Sunday, people would be manically depressed. Before, we would have thought we're in mass revival. Now we would think, we're, we're, it's, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. But I'll tell you one thing that's a real problem here for me. When the church is full here on a Sunday morning and we were, there's a big crowd up in the balcony this morning and things like that, you know what the attitude is very easy to have. It's, this is great. We've made it. No, we haven't. There's 149,000 people in this city who never, ever come anywhere near this church. And there's 140,000 of them who never go to any church. We haven't made it. And if we become proud, we're breaking what God says here. Don't become proud. Who do you think you are? You know, you need to continue in the kindness of God. But you need to have the heart of God in the sense of the compassion for those who are lost. And we need always to remember that. We are here because the Lord wants us to live and to share the good news. I, I'm sure tomorrow, plenty of people will say this, but Malcolm Farker was for me a hero, and I'm not just saying that. He was, and I'll tell you why. Because I never knew a time when he didn't serve God and give himself and Ruth, the family, in serving the Lord. Not perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. But just this simple attitude of we're here to serve and we're here to tell people about Jesus. You know, and only the Lord knows the fruit of that in eternity and the fruit of that now. I will tell you this. There are people all over the world today who are following Jesus because of the work that Malcolm was involved in. That's a great legacy to have. May God grant that we would have it as well. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word. You are a great and holy and sovereign God. You do not work as we would expect or as we would want, but far better. And sometimes there are great delays and we need patience. And sometimes we don't get what we want. And sometimes, oh Lord, what we want is arrogant and proud and wrong. So help us to want what you want. Help us to see this great plan that you have to bless the Jews, to bless the Gentiles, to bless the Jews again and, and then the Gentiles again. And we ask our God that we would be a blessing to all those whom we meet and see. That we, this congregation would be a blessing to this city and to other churches. And we pray, O oh God, that if we will not fulfill the mandate you have given us, that you would raise up those who will, and maybe even that would provoke us to jealousy. Help us, O oh Lord, to love you and to serve you, to love your people and love your world. And may your hand be upon us. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by...
singing glorious things of, <coughs> is it of thee or of you are spoken? Of you are spoken, Zion city of our God. Uh, we'll stand and we'll sing and then please remain standing for the benediction.